the passage Bruce will be preaching from this morning in Exodus. Uh, You should be able to find it on the screens behind me, or you're welcome to look it up in your pew Bibles or any Bibles you might have brought with you. Exodus 1, 1 through 22, and chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pythium and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. In chapter 2, verses 23, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Egypt groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You know, we just love stories of redemption. You know, whether it's Cinderella or Elsa and Let It Go or Pinocchio or Peter Pan. We love Edmund in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, we love the, the, the small... Uh, a band of, of fellows who go on the march to Mordor and um, uh, Tolkien's work. We just love stories of redemption. Redemption uh, presupposes or suggests this idea of recovery or, or payment, rescue, a vindication. But what does redemption 
uh, look like in real life with real people who've been broken themselves, who have been wounded in life, who've been enslaved by addictions or physically really slaves. Exodus begins with a word that doesn't appear in your English translation. But in the original language, there is a word there that never is brought over into any of our English translations. And it's a simple word. It's the word and. What people forget often is that Exodus was written at the same time or relatively the same time as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy by Moses while they're in uh, the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. And so he's telling the whole story of redemption from uh, creation all the way to the promise of a coming savior, a redeemer that Moses himself is going uh, to point to. My point being is, is that the word and, it's, it, it's unfortunate it doesn't make it into our English translations because one of the things it teaches us is that the story of Exodus is part of a bigger story. That the story and that we are so uh, uh, moved by this story with its dramatic miracles and delivery of the people that we forget it's part of a greater story of God redeeming his people. It's a story that starts back in Genesis where a famine had come uh, to the land in which Jacob, uh, the grandson of Abraham, was living with his family and his boys and, and eventually will be their wives and, and children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But a famine comes, 70 in all. And when that famine comes, uh, Joseph, who had been so treated poorly, one of the, the sons treated so poorly that he gets sold off and ends up in Egypt where uh, God blesses him and puts him in positions of power to the point where he's in charge of the distributing of the food, not only to uh, the, uh, the immigrants, not only to the refugees who are coming into Egypt, but also the Egyptians themselves. And... Uh, they are saved that way. But one of the things that tends to happen to these uh, 70 folks is they begin to uh, multiply. They become not uh, dozens, but hundreds and thousands to the point where Pharaoh gets worried about these folks because they're, these immigrants are becoming more than the majority culture. And so Pharaoh raises, rises up and says, we got to stop this. And his first plan to stop this is to make their life hell on earth. Because he enslaves them, he oppresses them, he hurts them. He, he uh, uh, delivers a very, what it says is, hard labor as slaves. And that doesn't work. They, they continue to multiply, it says. They, they, they fill the land and, and even abroad. And, and so Pharaoh says, I've got to put an end to this. And so he begins with genocide. Let's kill every a boy. Every son that is born into these Jewish homes. And, and when the midwives uh, refuse to do that, he, he launches a full-scale uh, killing of the children. And by the time we pick up our story here, they have been slaves for 430 years. And God's promise has become a doubt 
a faint memory, a wonder, would this ever end? And you might be asking, particularly those of you who, who uh, uh, growing up in the church and hearing these Bible stories is not familiar, well, why tell this story? Is there a moral to the story that we're supposed to get, like Aesop's fable, or is it really history that really teaches us something, that really proclaims good news? And obviously, I believe the latter. I wouldn't have brought the story to you. I've been thinking about preaching this for about six years. Ever since Doreen Morey taught it in a women's Bible study, I thought, man, that'd be a great study for our people because we all have stories, but they need a context because life demands an explanation. Particularly, the more intense the suffering of your life, the wounds of your life are, the stronger that demand is. You know, when, when things are going well and, and life's a lot of fun and enjoyment, life doesn't seem to demand much. And certainly not an explanation, but when things go wrong, when you lose your job, when, when you're raised in, in an environment that is this broken, as Frankie shared with us, or my own story, life demands an explanation. Why me? What's wrong with me? And the reason the story is so important, not just this story, but the overarching story that we can put our stories into, is that you and I don't live by bare facts. I know we, we thought that at one time. Just give me the facts, ma'am. I know, older reference lost on younger viewers. We don't live on just facts, but the interpretation of those facts is where we live. The stories that those facts tell, the stories that you and I tell each other, the stories that you and I believe about each other, give our lives the meaning and the shape to our identities. That's why they're so stinking important is that we know our story. And more importantly, we take our story, as painful as it might be, or joyous as it might be, that we put it into a context of a larger story. The story of what God has been doing from the very beginning and has an ending in mind. Instead of taking... God and putting him into our stories, Exodus calls us to take our stories, our individual stories with all of the events and all of the experiences and all of the pain and all the joys and put it into his. That's why history, and I'll play on this, is his story, not ours. These people are slaves. They're physically, emotionally, and spiritually enslaved. They are literally crying out to God for him to come and rescue them. They haven't given up that there is a God. What they've given up is that God will ever do anything after 430 years. Exodus is the Bible's picture of what redemption looks like. 
If you asked a Jew in Jesus' day, are you redeemed? That's the Old Testament way of talking about are you saved? Every Jew in Jesus' day would have said, of course I am. And then you could ask, well, how do you know you're redeemed? And every Jew would take you to the book of Exodus and recount the story of their redemption. Because they have grounded their individual redemption into the story of the people being redeemed. We don't tend to do that, do we? Because we're an individualistic Western culture as opposed to this Mideastern culture, we tend to lose the fact that our stories only have true meaning and true context and true explanation if we place them into the grander story. In order to help us understand as we move through Exodus, because we're only going to do it in eight weeks, we're going to really fly, but but we're looking at one singular theme, redemption. It really has three concepts that explain it, and, and we will come back to these same three concepts over and over again as we move through the book of Exodus, and this idea that redemption is about deliverance. And deliverance presupposes movement and movement from slavery to freedom. And so you get this idea of redemption is that in the, in the end, you're free because you once were a slave. But it's not just a deliverance. It costs to deliver us. And so a ransom has to be paid. And a ransom is not a bribe. But it is the price that must be paid in order to be redeemed. But it's not deliverance and ransom alone. It has a goal. And the goal is renewal. To become something new. That God redeems us to be new people. Not good people, but new people. And because of that new identity that we are given, we live different lives, new lives. And so Exodus is part of this larger, grander story of God about God's deliverance of all his people by paying the price to purchase their freedom, our freedom, from slavery to sin and death and giving us a new life as his children. But with that in mind, that's the big, grand, sweeping idea. We have to stop and ask a question. Because I can guarantee you that it was on the mind of the Jews after 430 years of slavery. And it probably, if you've experienced anything like an addiction or a life wound, which is almost everybody you've probably asked this very same question. The question simply goes, how can I trust a God who has the power to stop all the suffering but doesn't do it? You see, the Jews were part of a a very large club that wasn't particular about its members. It didn't have an initiation fee. It didn't have an initiation ceremony. It simply is called the pain club. It's the club in which you live in a profound emotional, physical, and spiritual pain. 
that very land that was known as salvation to the Jews had become their tomb. Egypt had become a place of pain from cradle to grave for the Jews. They daily suffered as far as the eye could see, as long as anyone could remember, and without hope that it would ever end. Please understand, ten generations separate Joseph and when Moses comes back for deliverance. That's a lot of generations, which means no one was alive and no one knew someone who knew freedom. It's not just that they were in bondage. They never knew anything different. And they never knew anyone who knew anything different. How hard it must have been for them to take their experience and put it into God's grand story. True or not, it must have been incredibly difficult to take their pain, their enslavement, their bondage, and put it into this grand story of God's redemption. God must have seemed to them an absent landlord, an uncaring pastor. Does God feel anything for us? while we wail on a daily basis about our losses. Why, why did God wait 430 years before he would rescue? Can I give you the, the answer to that? And then I want to explain it. The answer is in, found in the second chapter. The verses that Scott read to us beginning in verse 23 to the end. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Here's the, here's the gospel. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. See, I want you to understand that those, those verbs, those connections is everything about God and our pain. Everything that we've ever wondered, has he noticed? Does he, does he care? Is he there? Are answered in that verse. Because God heard them. Every cry of every mother who watched her child drowned in the river because he was a boy, a Jewish boy. Every father who, who felt incredibly guilty that his job was to provide and protect for his family and he couldn't even protect them from the leaders of his own country who was out to kill them. Every father that wanted to provide and all he had was brick and straw. Every child who had a dream of one day becoming something and would end up being nothing. God heard every cry. I love the Psalms. It says that every tear shed, God keeps in his own special glass so that no tears are wasted. 
But it doesn't say that he just heard. He, he saw. God's not blind. He's not on somewhere on the other side of heaven and he missed what was going on here at earth. God is everywhere and he's ever present. He can see in the dark places where terrible things go on. He can see into the darkness. He can see the, the abandonment. He can see the abuse. He can see the torment. Our God sees. It also says that he knew. That word knew is the same word that you get in Genesis when it says that Adam knew Eve. What it, what it implies is more than a knowledge that God one day didn't wake up and say, oh yeah, I've got these people in Egypt and they've been in this little bondage and I got to get them out of there. No, no, no. He intimately, personally was connected to these people. And as they suffered for 430 years, he suffered with them. We forget that about our God. He knew that they were due dignity that is due everyone created in the image of God. And he knew that his people were being denied human dignity that he had created them to have. These were his little girls and his little boys. But then it says he remembered. God is an an old man, an old absentee professor that can't remember the formulas. He remembers his promises, not in he forgot it and all of a sudden he found it in the old books. Remembered means he's moving towards something. It's time. It's time to act. They've wailed long enough. They've suffered enough. God's time is never our time, but it is always the right time. Even if we think it's the wrong time. God's grieved just as they are grieved and he will not let evil always have its way. And so what does God do? He sends a redeemer. God always rescues through a redeemer. If you ever go to the book of Judges, it's so misnamed. In the Hebrew, the word is is not judge, it's deliverer. And we have over and over again a deliverer who has come to rescue God's people. Because all deliverers, whether it's Moses or Joseph or the the judges that are in the book of Judges, they're all pointing to one deliverer, one final rescuer. Jesus Christ, who knows the weakness of every human being because he too became weak for us. He endured the hostility of the very people he came to save. He was despised and he was rejected. He experienced agony and betrayal and pain and abandonment himself. Can you imagine that? A God who experienced pain. Sometimes that boggles my imagination. He struggled to accept his own father's wisdom. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. If there's any way, take this cup from me. And Jesus knows what it is to trust a God who could, not, could stop all of the pain, but do, doesn't do it. Why did, what did Jesus actually do with his pain? 
And I think it's helpful for us when we, we begin to think about what Jesus does with his pain. Maybe that's what we ought to do with ours. I, let me first tell you what he didn't do. He didn't ignore it. He, he didn't drown it with an addiction. He didn't deny it, that it wasn't real. He didn't, he didn't try to minimize it. That's not that big a deal. I'm, I'm okay. He didn't meet people in the back of the church and when they asked, how you doing? Fine. Nor did he make platitudes about the sovereignty of God. That tends to be our sin as well. There's nothing wrong with the sovereignty of God, but you can't use it to mask the pain. Jesus went to his father in and with his pain. God doesn't turn away from him and he didn't turn and he doesn't turn away from us. God didn't God didn't merely ignore them. He heard them. He saw them. He knew them. And he remembered his promise to them to bring them home. So he rescues them. And the problem isn't that God has abandoned us in our pain. The problem is that sometimes in our pain, we abandon God. As you know, I I really love hymns. And my hymn for this week was Abide With Me. And uh, the the composer, the writer of the words, the poem, was a a man named Henry uh, Francis Light. And... And uh, he had a lifelong illness, kind of like yours, Frankie, every day of his life. And he eventually dies of tuberculosis, which was another problem that he had later in life. But one of the things as a pastor he did is that he sat with people who were dying. He considered that the, the height of pastoring, to sit by the bedside of people who were leaving this world into the next. And why his best friend William was dying, he wrote the ten stanzas that we only have four of. Abide with me. He says, abide with me, fast falls the even tide. He's talking about his death or death. The darkness deepens. Lord, abide with me. Hold Thou thy cross before my closing eyes shines through the gloom. Twenty years later, after he wrote this poem, another friend of his who came to his bedside, William Monk, Monk, sat down and wrote the music while he sat with his friend who was dying. And for the very first time, that hymn was sung at Light's funeral. God's gone nowhere. It is we who move. Sin and death create a barrier between God and us. And Jesus came to tear that barrier down. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why would God do that? Why would he subject himself to pain and suffering and indignity, rejection for us? It is because our God is a father. And I know for some of us, the word father has been darkened by the worst kinds of evil. 
But Jesus has come to reveal a different father. A heavenly father that is better than every earthly father we have ever known. No matter how good or how bad. But what about when we sense he is the cause of our pain? For some, it just hurts too much to draw close to the one who could stop the pain, but doesn't stop it. At least not yet. But what if that which causes us pain is the very place that you can become the closest to your Redeemer? We don't tend to think that way, do we? We tend to think of the wilderness, the desert, as a place that you and I need to get through to the other side. When often that is the place where God meets us most and draws his closest to us. Please understand, it's not because in those places we draw close to God, it's because God draws close to us. It is right and proper for you to grieve your losses and the wounds that life has inflicted on your soul. But know this, the evils that have been done to you have also been done to your father's little girl and to his little boy. God has done so much more than merely drawn close to you. He has heard your cry. He has saw your suffering. He knows you and your circumstances. And he remembers his promise to get you home. And so he's launched a rescue mission by sending Jesus into this world as a redeemer. And this mission cannot be stopped. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why does he do all this? Why does he care? Because he loves you. Because you are his little girl. Because you are his little boy. And he will stop at nothing to rescue you. This is Exodus. And why that story is so important to ours. I pray over the next weeks as you're in your Renew group and you're dealing with this, your story, that your friends are able to help you take your story and put it into the story so that you can have meaning and identity and an explanation to life. So that... You have something to share with those who do not have an explanation to the story of their life. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you gave us a story. You gave us our own stories. But we also thank you that you have a context for them because you have made us your children. Your little boy, your little girl. And you love us. And you have planned to deliver us. You've launched the mission. It's unfolding. 
And it will end with the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth where everything is made new, including us. That's where we're going and nothing can stop it. We pray, Father, that those in the room might be encouraged to take their story, our stories, and place them into your story so that we can weep no more. That we can leave the pain club and join the club of rejoicing. If not in this life, in the one to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.